Hey there, John. How are you? Hi, Glenn. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's Glenn Lowry. This is The Glenn Show. I'm with John McWhorter, my regular conversation partner here at The Glenn Show every other week. Glenn and John, the black guys. Uh, we're at Substack. We're at YouTube. You know how to find us. Uh, welcome back, John. Ah, thanks for having me, Glenn. It's a lovely Saturday morning. And um, yeah, let's talk about something. Okay, let's talk about something. Well, I can... First, apologize to our uh, loyal viewership that the audio is not up to snuff. I am not in my boom microphone equipped home podcast studio. I am in a hotel room in Toulouse in the south of France. The lighting is not perfect. Please don't bother to tweet or comment to the effect that the production qualities are not up to snuff because we're lucky to have any production at all. Um, on a lecture tour here in Europe and therefore, you know, broadcasting under less than ideal conditions. So my apologies to the audience. Uh, you're not going to ask me what I'm doing in Europe, John? Um, I lost a little of you, Glenn. Just say it again. Okay. Um, I apologize for uh, less than ideal production quality here because I'm in a hotel room in Toulouse in the south of France. And uh, I'm on a lecture tour here in Europe, and uh, I was inviting you to ask me what I'm doing here so that I could tell everybody in the world what I'm doing uh, on this lecture tour. Gosh, Glenn, what are you doing in France? Whatever am I doing in France? Well, I'm on my way to Marseille. In Marseille, there will be a meeting of the public economic theory scholars. These are economists who work on public economics throughout the world. And they gather for a conference in Marseille every year at the university there. And I've been invited to give a keynote address to that conference. But last week, um, I was in London, uh, and uh, the London School of Economics had invited me to give the distinguished Morishima lecture, named after um, a late and fabled economist who was prominent at the London School of Economics in the 1950s and 60s. And 70s, a Japanese, a Japanese economist named Michio Morishima. I gave the Morishima lecture um, last uh, Tuesday, and I will give a lecture in Marseille next Tuesday. Um, same lecture, actually. The lecture is about racial inequality in the United States. The Europeans are very interested in that subject because Black Lives Matter has been a phenomenon uh, worldwide. People are over here following developments on the race front in the U.S. closely. They have their own issues, of course, very different country to country here in Europe. But uh, nevertheless, they're interested in race. They're interested in hearing me talk about it. And I have these invitations, and I'm following through in fine style, I'm told. I'm doing my best. Have you noticed that um, I've noticed this over the past 25 years, actually? You know, a lot of Europeans genuinely think, and this, is, this includes educated Europeans, that the race situation here is about the way it was in about 1972. And it's partly media. It's partly that because, you know, they live in their own countries, they're only going to pay so much attention to us, which makes perfect sense. And so they might see things in certain broad strokes. And then you've got hip hop, which I think helps kind of convey a certain message and other aspects of the media. But a lot of Europeans think that the vast majority of black people live in what used to be called ghettos. There are a few black people who are lucky and have gotten past that life. Those people often don't understand what held the other ones back and can't be seen as examples. And part of it is also that they see that America is a country with a great deal of social inequality, and they see it as manifested partly in this heartless relegation of most black people to the ghettos. And, you know, that's part of a general system they see where we don't care about the people on the bottom. Have you noticed any of that? I don't see it as much in England, but once you get over to the continent, I find that I'm often talking to people who really think that I'm coming from good times. Or, or something like that. Do you know I what haven't I mean? really noticed that. I, I certainly didn't in the UK, where, as you say, I think people are better informed, maybe 
than in the continent about what's going on day to day in the U.S. Uh, we have the common language and all of that. But uh, uh, these countries are very different one from another. I'm no expert here, but uh, the situation in the U.K. is is is. I met with a, a group while I was at the London School of Economics. Um, what do they call themselves? Uh, um, Black Economic Scholar Network. I think that's what they call themselves. They reminded me of the 1970s in the United States when there were a handful of black economists and uh, they had organized themselves into something called the Caucus uh, the Caucus of Black Economists, which later became the National Economics Association, which is an African-American economics professional organization. It still functions. It functions well and has a journal and has a, you know, a wide membership and whatnot and is recognized by the American Economics Association and all of that. But a half century ago, it was a very modest enterprise, a handful of people who you know, talk to each other about their struggles and travails. And I met with a group of graduate students in economics, all of whom aspire to be professional economists within the UK. The set of complaints that they had were not dissimilar to what one might have heard here in the United States some time ago. And what one still hears echoed in some of the contemporary um, complaints about the lack of diversity in economics in the United States. But we're light years ahead uh, of the UK. Mm. Um, I mean, there are, for example, no prominent black faculty at the London School of Economics faculty. Mm. I'm sure they lament that, but such is indeed the case because uh, the scarcity of uh, of uh, trained people who are available for those positions. Is there a space there for just openly acknowledging that there aren't enough trained people, or is the fashion to say that racism must be why there aren't enough? Black faculty. But there is that tendency. I, will, I wouldn't say it's the fashion. I didn't notice it to be the fashion amongst the handful of black scholars, young, they're all young, whom I spoke with. Uh, they, I think, would, to a person, um, say that uh, they're not trying hard enough, you know, to uh, recruit, train, retain uh, black economists. But this group was... Uh, was very interesting. It was heterogeneous. It was, for example, almost entirely of Blacks descended from African immigrants, second generation, Nigerian. Uh, and, I didn't even uh, wonder. I other assume. immigrants. Now, there's a substantial Jamaican and West Indian immigrant uh, originating Black population in uh, London. On the way from Center City, London, to the Gatwick Airport, we had to drive through Brixton, uh, which mm. is a district of the city which has is famous for rioting in the past and so forth. And it was very black. I mean, I noticed just watching people walking on the street that there were, you know, two out of every three people was dark of skin. Um, it was, did not look like any ghetto I've seen in the United States. That is to say, it looked a lot better than any ghetto I've seen in the United. I mean, a lot less dilapidated, a lot less distress on the streets and. Things Nothing looks like that there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a country with a pretty robust welfare state and a national health service and things of this kind. But um, it's a different, it's a very different, um, uh, you know, a very different landscape on, on the racial uh, issues. There's a debate uh, about systemic racism that I think has been in, uh, imported to a certain degree, especially abetted by the post-George Floyd uh, remonstrations here in the United States. Um, there was a report, uh, Anthony Sewell is his name, S-E-W-E-L-L, -L, commissioned by the conservative government here in the UK to produce a report on systemic racism. He's oh, that, yeah. Jamaican yeah. origin. And uh, basically reported with data that uh, a one-size-fits-all anti-black discrimination story doesn't work in the UK. That, first of all, the people of color here are not only or even mainly black. They're mainly South Asian, Bangladeshi, and so on. Indian. that they're doing pretty well, all things considered, in terms of social mobility when you look over the long run. Uh, that 
within even the black population, as I've just mentioned, there's a lot of heterogeneity with the uh, West Indian immigrants and the uh, African immigrants uh, being distinguishable one from another, that uh, culture is an important part of the story. If you want to understand group inequality in the UK, this is the Sewell report that I'm summarizing. And so a simplistic anti-Black systemic racism story just won't fly here, says Sewell. And when I ask people about this, I met both with faculty and with students, not Black faculty. I met with faculty uh, at the London School of Economics in their social policy group and among their economists. And I asked people about the Sewell report. Uh, the response was that, uh, okay, brought some facts to the table, but the report probably was not a success because it got caught up in a culture war kind of struggle between activists who wanted of color, who wanted to say systemic racism is the thing, and this guy is a front for the conservative government that's trying to deny, on the one hand, and a bunch of people, conservatives among them, on the other hand, who were relieved to have a report that finally confirmed the American-style systemic racism indictment was entirely inappropriate to the United Kingdom, which I suspect, in fact, it is. Oh, it clearly is. Yeah. Um, and, and because of this tug of war that was going on, Sewell's report uh, basically got buried and didn't have any real impact on the discourse. It became a you know, Rorschach test. Depending on who was looking at it, they saw what they wanted to see. It wasn't helped by the fact that some of the researchers who served on the commission and whose scholarly research was cited by the report, when the critical wind started blowing and people started calling it a conservative report and a, you know, uh, you know, racist or abetting racism report, they didn't want to be tarred by that brush. And so they started peeling off and saying, oh, well, yes, I was on the commission, but he didn't really cite my research in the appropriate way, and he misused my research findings, and I don't agree, you know, et cetera. So the, the report seems to have not had the major impact that uh, people who've uh, impaneled the uh, study group had hoped. Uh, but in any case, it's a complicated situation there in the UK uh, with respect to the racial issues, but they're very interested in and I think, uh, as you hint, somewhat knowledgeable about what's going on in the United States, a afraid that the um, uh, activist rhetoric of the American Black Lives Matter movement will unduly uh, influence uh, the debate within their own country where they think that's, you know, not at all the story that that's going on. Uh, France is a completely different story, and I don't know no. France nearly as well, but... You know, we have uh, in France this Republican tradition of, you know, French culture and French national uh, of, of fealty that should transcend, should transcend race. They won't even collect social statistics denominated in racial terms in France out of a concern not to reify, uh, reinforce and, uh, you know, embed more deeply into the consciousness of the uh, social uh, observers, a sense of racial categorization when thinking about um, political inequality questions in France. So um, I'll probably find out more when I get to Marseille and here I'm basically going to give the same talk, hear how people react to it. Uh, but I claim no expertise about the European situation. I'm merely, you know, I'm, I'm de Tocqueville in reverse, you know, something like that. I'm, I'm coming over from the U.S. to talk about our, yeah. Please forgive me for comparing myself to the great Alexis de Tocqueville. You know, it's, it's, what I'm seeing from what you're describing is that there are some parties in, for example, Britain, and um, I know there are some parties in France on this, where what they're afraid America is going to import is something very peculiar about us that it's easy to forget how odd and modern it is. And I'm fascinated by, I almost wish I had the tools to study it formally, the difference between a person who is told, you've really had it hard, who bristles and doesn't want to be seen that way and wants to show that they can get past it, 
And a person who is told, you really had it hard, who finds that validating and is insulted if that isn't said and acknowledged and forms an identity around having had it hard. And the idea in America, educated America, is that there's something enlightened about wanting to be seen that way. Whereas I think that the human norm is to go into a little bit of denial about how you have it hard. You don't want to be seen that way. And I think that many Nigerian immigrants here are inclined to think, no, I don't want to focus on how I have it hard. Even if I do, I'm going to kick butt anyway. And some people are better at it than others, but you see certain differences that People like Amy Chua get in trouble for calling attention to, you know, the Nigerian immigrant success. Amy Chua, yeah. the Yale Law School professor who wrote a book with her husband, Jeb Rubenfield, the I'm doing this thing, package. giving a little index card. The triple package, right. And I just find it interesting. A lot of the problem that you and I have is that we just don't have that gene, or whatever it is, that says that you're supposed to focus on the obstacles and to be insulted if they're not dwelt upon. That's what I think they're afraid is going to be imported, because that's become an educated American way to frame these sorts of issues. And the sad thing is, and this is something that I see coming, we're talking about these black-white issues as if it was 1960, when America is black and white, and then there are like two Chinese immigrants and 16 Latinos. Of course, I'm exaggerating. But we're in an America where we're talking about this racial reckoning where it's mostly about black people. We are a vast minority of the population, and there are a great many other people who are not white who are here with a full range of issues and with a very different way of viewing what sociologists call victimization and agency. And it's getting to the point where we, Black America has a certain power to get a great deal of attention, to have the whole country and to some extent focus on our issues when really we're, you know, what, one in nine people, and it's a very different scenario than it used to be. And the idea is that we have a particular history, but that's a thin justification for the amount of attention that we often are claiming we're supposed to get. And I imagine it's going to change. There are just too many other kinds of people. When I walk around in New York City, I think to myself, this idea that it's all about what was done to Black people in the past and what we're going to do about Black people now doesn't work when you see all of these South Asian immigrants, all of these Southeast Asian immigrants, all of these East Asian immigrants, all of these white people from Europe with thick accents, all of these people from so many places, not to mention the Caribbean and Africa, where every second black person from there doesn't agree with this ideology. It's going to change. I'm not sure what would tip it, because the idea is that you express a certain fealty to issues being centered around the concerns of native-born black Americans. But it's beginning to be a vast distortion in terms of what the whole country consists of. And I'd be interested to see where that's going to go. That was very well said. Uh, that that uh, summarizes my concern quite accurately. Uh, I do think it's a, a ticking time bomb. Maybe that puts it a little bit hyperbolically. But you did say tipping. And uh, un unraveling is another metaphor that comes to mind. A kind of consensus that the descendants of slaves are in the driver's seat in terms of the narratives about, quote, people of color, close quote, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all of that, where our uh, enslavement and uh, marginalization and subjugation becomes the master tale about white supremacy and so on. It's not even an accurate characterization of the Negro uh, saga, in my opinion. Yes, I used the word Negro, and I used it intentionally. You said Negro. I used it intentionally. <laughs> I don't even think that's an accurate story about Black folks who descend from slaves. Frankly, they're Black billionaires in this country. There's a huge Black middle class. This is a completely different country than it was in 1970, et cetera. I could go on for a very long time about that, as you know, and I won't. But in any case, it's definitely not true about Nigerian immigrants in the United States of America, the second generation, who are all over the Ivy League, as you may have noticed. Uh, I don't know if you can get the official statistics, but my impression is that at least a third and maybe more of the blacks, quote unquote, black students 
are second generation Caribbean and African, Caribbean and African. immigrant families who are at Brown. Generally about it's that high here. Okay, so there. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not even true about them. Moreover, you've got other, quote, people of color, like the Latinos. This majority-minority vision that some Democratic pollsters and others say guarantee a progressive domination of American politics soon enough. This is the flip side of the great replacement theory rhetoric that you hear from on the right of people sounding an alarm that the country is going to become non-white because too many non-white people are taken over, that the white uh, racists who are afraid of people of color, swarthy hordes, as you called them the last time we talked. The flip side of that are the crowing progressives who are counting, bean counting heads of non-white people and thinking Texas is going to go blue, you know, because the Latino population is going and so forth and so on, and are operating on this uh, unified field theory of non-whiteness in which they reckon that all of these various non-white groups are in the same basket, politically speaking, and I think that's dead wrong. And I think you begin to see the unraveling when you look at the uh, diverse political behavior of Latino populations. I can't cite statistics, but the numbers were up voting for Trump in 2016, up by voting for Trump in 2020. We'll see what happens. They're more conservative culturally. They're not all pro-choice. A lot of them are Catholics. Oh, heaven forbid. Whereas the progressive thinks there are too many Catholics on the U.S. Supreme Court and you find the occasional pundit being willing to say such a bigoted, anti-religious statement is there too many Catholics on the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, were there too many Jews on the U.S. Supreme Court when the Jews are overrepresented amongst those who are on the Supreme Court? Is that the way you want to talk about the United States Supreme Court? Well, I'm not sure how that goes over with a working class Catholic Latino family sitting in the southwest of the United States. They're culturally conservative. Um, and you can't take their votes for granted if you're a Democrat, it seems to me. The people of color argument, it seems to me, is, is a pretty thin argument. And the, and the confidence with which the uh, ultra-radical Black spokesman of the Black Lives Matter stripe wield this uh, weapon of non-whiteness as if they were speaking for all of these people, when they may find when they look around that law and order— actually appeals to a whole lot of, quote, people of color, and that defunding the police and castigating and attacking of the instruments of the maintenance of order in modestly endowed social environments is not a winning formula. Chesa Bodine may well get recalled in San Francisco, for example, but we could, you know, run down the list of them. I've just encountered a new shaving system and it's terrific. It's called Harry's. Now's the time to dump your old expensive shaving routine and try Harry's. The price is right and the quality is outstanding. Harry's is a newcomer to the scene, an underdog. Betting on the underdog can pay off big, especially with a company like Harry's that teams up the best quality and construction methods in the razor game with incredibly fair pricing. It feels terrific to support an up-and-coming company, especially when the product is so good. New customers can redeem a Harry's trial set for just $3 when you go to harrys.com forward slash Glenn. Harry's believes you shouldn't have to choose between a close, comfortable shave and a fair price, so they give you both. In fact, Harry's blades are designed to stay sharp longer. In a recent study, guys who shave four times a week said that their eighth shave was as smooth as their first. That's a better experience with every shave and savings over time. Harry's is giving their best offer to my listeners. New Harry's customers can redeem a starter set. You get five blade razor, a weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover to protect your blades when you're going on the road. That's a $13 value and it's available for just $3. 
There's truly never been a better time to try Harry's. Go to harrys.com forward slash Glenn to try Harry's today. It's, we really, we're fish that don't know that we're wet. And um, I just think of, you know, take, take somebody my color. You know, I'm middle brown. I, uh, some people call me light-skinned. I don't know what that means. I am red, as I used to call it. I'm in the, I'm the middle. Take me and then take somebody who, you know, has Bangladeshi immigrant parents. They're probably a little darker than me, but let's say we're about the same color. Now, there's this idea that we're both people of color. And the overtones of person of color is that we're both oppressed in some way by the white hegemony. Now, that person who is the child of, you know, basically, a, you, you know we're talking about Raihan Salam. Hello. Baby Raihan. And so, <laughs> basically. You should explain that to people. Explain to people how it is so, that we're talking about Raihan Salam, who's president of the Manhattan Institute and is a man of color himself. I'm not sure exactly what his ethnic background is. We've South been Asian circling is, around is a, this, intellectual yeah. of some of some uh, f- formidability, if that's a word. Is that a word? And he has been making statements along the lines of what you and I are, are talking about, and quite you know quite pointedly yeah. and articulately, including the interview that he did with Ezra Klein I, in the New York Times I, uh, last I week. Call that to everyone's attention. It was outstanding. Ezra Klein and Raihan Salam. Yeah, but anyway, my point was just going to be that. That Bangladeshi immigrant's child, whether it's Raihan or not, has certainly suffered some discrimination now and then. You know, somebody calls that person a name. Somebody, you know, underestimates that person in some way. There are little things that happen. But that person generally is not inclined to think of themselves as oppressed by some hegemon the way black people are encouraged to. And we're the same color. We're the same people of color. And yet the Raihan person is thinking, yeah, not perfect, but certainly better than where my parents came from. And I'm I'm doing fine. I have friends. I, you know, I, I date. I get married. Everything's fine. Whereas if it's me, I'm supposed to feel more oppressed. And the reason is supposed to be, one, my history in slavery. But frankly, it was a very, very long time ago, as was Jim Crow. And then it's also supposed to be that I live in fear of being um, abused or killed by the police. Whereas the Bangladeshi immigrant kid doesn't. And as far as I'm concerned, that risk that I run is not significant enough to forge an identity around. And so I'm of color. This other person is of color. And we're both in the same boat. No, because that person isn't encouraged to think the way I am. And the way that I'm encouraged to think is not justified by slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, or the fact that the police might interpret me differently than they uh, uh, interpret him. And yet we're stuck with this whole notion. Yeah, we're both people of color and we're supposed to be worried about the white. And I mentioned a couple other things and no, give your reaction to real. crime. Uh, these people are living often cheek by jowl with black populations that have high rates of criminal participation and they're being victimized by them. That might that might factor into it. Mm-hmm. Patriotism. These people think the streets are paved with gold in this country. It's the land of the free, almost quite literally. There's no place else on earth they'd rather have moved from Bangladesh to than here, where they and their children can realize the American dream. Whereas the standard Black Lives Matter line, line is the American dream uh, is a lie. That's what Ta-Nehisi Coates will tell you. That's what Eva Max Kendi will tell you. It's not cut out for you because, um, because you're black. Values. These people often affirm a conservative value of family, of uh, sexual modesty, of birth within the uh, sanctity of marriage, of respect for parents, of, of, of a kind of uh, parental uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which I regret to report is not always manifest in the behavior and the value matrix that characterizes much of the lower strata of African-American society. Of course, I'm not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to say that, but it would appear to be the case. So the coalition is grounded on a, a kind of eliding of these very fundamental differences in worldview characteristic of various uh, elements, components of the people of color aggregate. Your comment? You know, 
that violence part is also an issue. And you know what one of the most interesting moments for me was in any of the conversations we've had was actually that one that we had with Randall yeah. Kennedy some time ago. That There was a moment in that that really threw me for a loop, which is that the truth is, the truth simply is that, for example, in New York City, black men commit a vastly disproportionate number of homicides. And it is mostly of other black men. That's true. But the issue is not people tend to kill people of their own color. It doesn't just stop there. Yes, white people tend to kill white people. Black people tend to kill black people. But black people kill proportionately many, 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 many more black people than white people or Asians or Latinos. It's a big gulf. I wonder why that we should be able to explain why there is that level of violence. And there was that time when I asked Randy, I said, why is it that when you read about a carjacking, you don't even have to wonder? You, you know, it's, it's in Milwaukee or something like that. You know that the names are going to be black names eventually. You know that nobody white, you know, usually nobody Latino and certainly nobody Asian did that. It's only black people who do that. Why? And the answer is not there's something wrong with black people. But I assumed that Randy, in all of his brilliance, because he his criminology, he knows these things. I assumed that he would know. And even he didn't. And I'm not putting him down. It's just that I was really struck that he didn't have an answer because I thought that's where it was going. And I'd like to know what the answer is, because, of course, Charles Murray, who you have spoken with, thinks that there is something inherently violent about Black people, and that's what these numbers suggest. And he's not crazy to come to that. I don't think Charles thinks that. I mean, I don't know but where he, he. I mean, he, anyway, I should let you explain yourself. It, what, what What do you think the reason for, okay. for, for this well, is? Then let's not talk about Charles. No, no I, I think he just thinks it's very important to take note of the fact that there is greater violence. I don't think he thinks he may think it, but he hasn't said that there's something inherently wrong with black people. Okay. He, he just, just gives, gives the numbers, right? Well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can think of some possible explanations. Uh, social structures like absent fathers and discipline of teenage boys, or like gang affiliation and the kinds of dispute resolution that turns the violence between gang members, where we'd have to look on the ground. Uh, uh, Papa Christos, Andrew Papa Christos is his name, a sociologist at Northwestern University. Uh, has gotten famous for his detailed mapping of, you know, these kind of spatial uh, representations of who killed whom, you know, drawing links between the two of them. And you see these clusters and you can just see them, you know, the uh, four trade disciples and the black peace stone ra rangers in Chicago, you know, I'm, uh, are, you know, rival gangs. And then the fact is that uh, the gang leaders who might have been able to quell the disputes before they get out of hand get arrested and locked up. And then the gangs fragment into these smaller ganglets, you know, of a few square blocks or whatever that get into disputes with each other. And there's nobody up here who can call a truce or enforce the, you know, informal rule of law that says, no, you don't go shoot that guy because the retaliation thing will spin out of control. And then the retaliation thing spins out of control. There's that. But I, I don't really know. I'm not going to pretend to uh, having a handle on this. I mean, I will call attention to social media, as you often do, that uh, permits us kind of a coordination of this thing. So these flash mob events that are happening, like in Chicago right now, North Avenue uh, Beach in Chicago has become a place where hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of young people, mostly black people, will gather. And some of the shooting incidents that have broken out there are happening because the event has happened. And, and the event is mediated by the ability of people to say, hey, we're going to hang out at 10 o'clock tonight at the whatever. Mayor, the city is talking about imposing curfews and, you know, downtown businessmen are going ballistic because nobody wants to come and eat in the restaurant because you can't get to your car after your meal without worrying that somebody's going to mess with you. And just the presence of these kids on the street, you know, they're unruly, they're loud, they're they're uh, irreverent, uh, and often uh, they're violent. They're muggings that take place. There are internal disputes that spill over and whatnot. But I'm rambling. You've asked a hard question. Why is the racial difference in, in violence so great? Um, you know, you could say culture. You would not have explained very much if you used that word. 
It's almost a tautology. Yes, they have values that are consistent with the expression of uh, violent behavior such as we are observing, but everyone behaves in a way that in some sense is a reflection of the values that they embrace. So you will have only relabeled the problem by, by calling attention to, to the, the cultural predicate. It's obvious that in that world, violence is seen as less abnormal than among, for example, Bangladeshi immigrant you know, teenagers, et cetera. And, you know, this is an important moment because if you ask this question and then you give that answer. And this is, I mean, this is especially for people who are watching us who are on the young side, to the extent that this is supposed to be at all educational. What you'll hear very often about Glenn and me, I, I think I see this said about myself probably daily, all you have to do is open up Twitter, is that we downplay racism and that that's some sort of sin, that we're not emphasizing it enough with the implication that if we emphasized it more, we would be giving light to what the solution to everything is. We're downplaying racism, and that's like you know, downplaying how important oxygen is to life. No, we don't downplay racism. We're saying that racism is overplayed. And one of the reasons is, for all the people who you see out there who think that racism is everything and have whole careers based on writing about racism, think about what Glenn and I just talked about and explain. Where is racism in all of that? Now, you can talk about history, but you can't go back and fix history. Is what we just talked about due to something called racism in any way that actually makes any sense and that could actually be transformed into policy that would change things? And of course, maybe you can look at the reasons that these kids are doing these sorts of things now and call those things racism. You can play with language, but are you really convinced? If you read those people's arguments, are you really convinced? The simple fact is that racism does exist. It is important. But this level of violence that we're talking about, to say that that level of violence is due to racism and even structural, it's due to structural racism. The question is how? Explain how. And you've got about 25 words. How is it due to structural racism? And you can see that that's just, it's, it's a worthless way of looking at it. And so that is why Glenn and I downplay racism, because there's more to talk about than that when people are really suffering. Racism is not the answer to everything well, that said, ails black people. That's very well to point said. That I, I think the fact that it doesn't lead to any policy intervention that can plausibly be taken as a solution to the problem at hand is key. I think it's exculpatory. I think people are trying to say, don't blame black people for our plight. Racism, the system, structure is the uh, source of responsibility for our plight. There's nothing wrong with black people. Ibram X. Kendi tells you this every day. There's nothing wrong with black people. If you say that the disparity is not due to racism, you're in effect saying there's something wrong with black people. Well, of course, I don't think that's true. I, I, I don't think that that follows. But if you can rest with racism, you will have taken the weight of responsibility off. Um, another thing I want to say with respect to the violence issue is, and I, I think my friend uh, and colleague Bruce Western, the sociologist, your colleague at Columbia, would agree with this. Witnessing violent acts when you're young is traumatizing. So if you're in a community in which there's a high level of violence in the you know, geographic, class, race, urban uh, uh, locale that you're situated in. There is gang warfare. There are a lot of guns. People are shooting each other. You're seeing people bleeding out, knife fights, uh, bitter domestic disputes that end up in violent confrontation between partners, things of this kind. A lot of anger, a lot of loud voices shouting all the time. You know, this kind of uh, rough uh, culture. Um, an honorific uh, uh, masculinity where people have to defend their reputation for being willing to fight it. If you're in such an environment and you see this affects the neurological development, it, it, affects, it affects the moral sensibility of the young person and they become more susceptible themselves to being entrapped in that and reproducing that same kind of way of life. So that's another. And what makes all of that go is closure on the social networks in which people are embedded. The fact that they are you know, uh, clusters of people who are segregated, not just geographically, but also imaginatively. They, they don't see much outside of this little small world. 
and also in terms of their relationships, their connections to other people um, are closed. And, and so if something is uh, amiss in that closed space, it tends to get reproduced across generations within that space and uh, can be uh, resulting in, in this, this uh, outsized difference, which is uh, order of magnitude in the relative frequency of violent acts. And, and none of that is blaming people. I mean, you know, as linguist, I'm always thinking, you speak the language you know. If that's all you knew, then how can you be blamed for falling into those patterns? But for somebody to look at that and cross their arms and say, I see racism, or for somebody to go, because of this conversation we're having, because we don't understand that racism is there. Think about how whack that is. It really isn't a constructive response. And I don't think, unlike I'm guessing with yeah. you, Glenn, I'm just guessing, but I don't think those people who are clicking their tongues and saying, I see racism, are acting. I don't think that it's a grift. But I think that they, in a way, have a hard time seeing beyond all that they've ever known. All that those people have ever known is a certain overeducated crowd who talk that language. And then you went to college and you took courses where you were versed further in that language. You might have even gotten an advanced degree where all anybody talks about is that and where you're validated for doing that and you never hear any other perspective. And you're taught that any other perspective is just somebody who's either ignorant or some kind of Uncle Tom. It's all you knew. That's all they know. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that they're always right. And the answer to what we're talking about is not, I see racism. That's, that's a know-nothing Let answer, me just right? observe, this is a meta observation. You just applied my network closure theory to the realm of the ideas people will promote, not just the behaviors, violent behavior, because you're in a closed network where there's a lot of violence, but uh, attributing uh, racial disparities to racism because that's the environment that you've been, uh, you know, you've been educated in, you've been reinforced and brought to your maturity within a world in which no one ever says the kind of things that you and I say, which is what makes the kind of things that we say so threatening and so infuriating to some people. Threatening because we break a taboo and stand outside of a consensus and give aid and comfort to the racists out there who are waiting to see black faces saying that thing and infuriating because how can we not see? Can't we see, you idiots? You're, you're, you're living in your bubble and you can't see how racism is rearing its ugly head every, uh, everywhere we look. Uh, and you know, we see the same thing that they see. We just don't read the, the, the tea leaves in the same way that they do. Well, the, that, that's why we're, we're often called... Um What's that expression? We're white people's best black friend. We're kind of you know, turning them away from the racism. And, you know, the answer to that one is, what are you so afraid white people are going to do? And when I ask that question of that kind of person, then I also have to point out, why the pause? <laughs> why don't you have ready answers? Why are you so worried about white people turning away from racism? They're going to go out and do what, therefore, because we're their best friends? What is it? What are you so scared of? And frankly. The scared is interesting. A lot of those people really are afraid of white people. I think that a lot of those people really do have an inferiority complex in terms of whiteness. And a lot of what they do is acting that out. It's not us who are self-hating, it's them. And I just really, I often have asked people, what are they gonna do? Okay, let's say that they're not thinking about racism enough. What are they gonna vote for? What are they gonna vote against? What are they gonna... Are they going to petition? They are not going to feel guilty, is what Shelby Steele would tell you. They're going to be relieved of their burden of mm -hmm. guilt. The white people, when they listen to Lowry and McWhorter, will be able to walk away unburdened by a feeling of guilt and responsibility for the conditions of blacks. And what I say to people who make that worry is, you just handed over to white people the power to determine your fate. You just made them God. You're going to sit and wait for them to fix whatever is wrong that troubles uh, your community, and should they be uh, unburdened of the obligations to fix your community by a sense that they are not responsible for it, you will be lost. Well, guess who is the moral agent in that story? The white people are the moral agent. They're the ones who can be magnanimous or not, depending upon their choice. They have agency. They can act. All you can do is plead. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. 
I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better. I've noticed it abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Ah, By the way, Ian Rowe is um, at AAEI, and he has written a book. It's called <laughs> Agency. I remember learning the word agency from sociologists when my book Losing the Race came out. I learned that I didn't understand that black people don't have any agency. It's a good title. And so I just thought we should. Oh, we, we should. should. Ian Rowe is a good our, uh, colleague and a partner of mine, partner in crime. We were just back from the old Parkland conference, which you didn't attend, John, but we invited you. Uh, these these were African-American intellectuals of a more or less conservative orientation gathering in Dallas, Texas, to compare notes. Shelby Steele, Ian Rowe, Jason Riley of, of Manhattan Institute and the Wall Street Journal and your humble servant. Um, organized a, a two-day panel, set of panels and keynote addresses and whatnot. Justice Clarence Thomas uh, made remarks uh, over dinner. Uh, one night, Thomas Sowell's presence uh, loomed behind the scene. He was not there. He's up in years now in his 90s and infirmed, but uh, his spirit was, was very much present. And Ian talked about his book, the central formula of which, if I may, free family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. He builds an argument for empowering Black uh, agency around those uh, precepts, uh, the central importance of family, the fundamental role of religion. Don't get upset, John. He's a religious man. Uh, 
<laughs> I can handle that. <laughs> Uh, economic <laughs> empowerment, entrepreneurship, and and so on. So that's Ian Rowe, and yes, his book does deserve to be touted. You know what I was doing? Now I'm feeling like I was so absent from that. I have spent three days going nine to five recording a set for the Great Courses people. Now they're called Wondrium about the history of the alphabet from A to Z. Although I didn't actually go in order. Wow! But that's what I was doing. Because people need to know about the history of the alphabet, just like they need to know that racism isn't the only problem black people have. And so that's well, why I don't I know anything about the history of the alphabet. The John, I'm fascinated. That's I'm so glad you mentioned it. Can you say a little bit more about that project? You know, it was. You know, the history, the invent, the the alphabet, I'm still tired from all that talking. The alphabet was invented in Africa. It was invented by these Egyptian workers who wanted to have a writing system that was easier than the hieroglyphics. And so they came up with these letters. And that's the first time that anybody is using an alphabet that ordinary people can master quickly. Then that jumps across the Red Sea. And from there, it gets taken up by the Phoenicians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And now we live in that alphabet. And the letters come gradually. And, you know, some of them give birth to other letters and some letters drop out. It's a very interesting story. And finally, you get to where we are now. And it needed to be told. It needed to be told in a processable way. And, you know, you can read a book where it goes A, B, C, D, and you get you get tired around E. And so I decided to make it more dynamic and make them into little stories and not go in order. But laying down those sets is tough. You have to just sit there and talk and talk and talk. And it's visual. You have to have poise. You can't touch your nose. And so that's what I did Wednesday, Are you reading Thursday, a script Friday. When so that's you're, the next When you're uh, recording these lectures? No, no, you you have a teleprompter where your basic points are there. But if you're doing it right, you should you should be extemporaneous the way I am on my Lexicon Valley podcast. So, no, you're not just reading would be kind of easy, but you have to give a lecture and you have to do it right because people are going to buy it. So I finished it. It's 16 lectures. But that is why you recorded 16 with lectures within only three days. We must have spent a, yes. a much longer time preparing the framework for these, for these talks. Months before. Did you have to do Months. a lot of yeah, you, original you, like research in order to compose these lectures? Or, or is this the kind of thing that a functioning li linguist will just know? In between. So it, it isn't my research. Other people have, uh, have found these facts, but I had to gather them. And I had to make them into a story that somebody would want to listen to. It's basically each one of those sets is a book. It takes about the same amount of work as writing a book, except then you deliver it instead of writing it down on paper. But, yeah, linguists, linguists don't usually know that much about writing systems. That's not how we're trained, but you can vacuum up the information if you want to. And that's what I did because I laymen love writing and the alphabet. They want to hear about you it. You were so enterprising, so, that, so productive. Yeah. I mean, you, you put me to shame, John. Really? I am wearing myself out, Glenn. Okay, I can't, I can't help it. I want to ask you, if you will, and if you don't want to do it, that's fine. Tell us one of those stories, just one, about the alphabet. Yeah, just just about the alphabet. Um, just like, do one? Um, where it's kind of, oh, so, for example, you want to know why C is so often pronounced like S. Like if you're trying to teach somebody how to read and you're dealing with all of this mess with C and S and K, and it's because you start out with the K sound. And if you put the K sound before an E or an I, it becomes K, then it becomes T, then it becomes S, like that. So the sound changes, but the letters often stay where they are. So you start with a C, like Caesar, Julius mm -hmm. Caesar, Caesar. But then after a while, where that C is, is pronounced as S, like in succession. So you've got C meaning the two things. That's how that happens. All sorts of stuff like that. Or alpha starts as an ox head. And then you take the ox head and you turn it and you sit it on the ground. And that's where you get the capital I mean, the symbol a. for that's alpha was an ox head. It was an ox's head with a little beard at first in, in Egypt, and then it becomes this thing. And at first, alpha was just, uh, 
There was a letter for uh, the glottal stop. It wasn't for ah. The first alphabet didn't have any vowels. So it was just uh. But then the Greeks wanted an ah. And so you, you, tell, you tell the story. And there are going to be little animations. That A, if you loosen it up, becomes the print lowercase a. You wouldn't think there was any relationship between the two. Little things like um, one more factoid. Lowercase a in print is different from the lowercase a you probably make with your hand. There are two of them. That's also true of G. There are two lowercase g's. There's one that looks like a monkey's hanging its tail. Then there's one that looks kind of like an eight. Those are the only two where there are two different lowercase forms in terms one. of that sort of thing. And I, I also talk about how lowercase happened. One more question. It's a story. Since I don't know, whatever it is, twenty mm percent -hmm. or thirty percent of humankind are Chinese, or are speaking languages mm -hmm. which are represented in writing with Chinese char uh, related characters. Why is it that the East Asians don't have alphabet in the same way that uh, the other uh, linguistic groups have? Human conservatism, and the truth is, alphabet has taken over most of the world. A system based on pictures in that way is, I mean, I love Chinese writing. I've been learning a lot of it over the past 10 years, but it's a very clumsy and anti-democratic system in its way. But it's what they're used to, and it's part of the culture, it's part of history, and so it's not going away. You can write Chinese in Roman, but they tend not to like it. And I have had Chinese people say they would prefer to read the characters because the characters makes everything clearer to them than writing it out in the Roman. And I can kind of take their point, but they are the minority in this. Using the characters, that's the way writing systems start. Then you find that an alphabet is more efficient and easier for more people to learn. And so the Chinese system, as beautiful as it is, that's kind of an archaism that they have because they want to keep things the way they are, just like our spelling system makes no sense, but we keep it the way it is. I don't want things to be phonetically spelled. It'd be ugly. We're used to the way we spell. They feel that way about their characters. But yeah, that's not the way most of the world is anymore. It was in antiquity, but most of us have moved on. And But they have that. I'm going to get in trouble for that, but they have that. Very good. Very interesting. Okay, John, I have a bone to pick with you, and perhaps we can make this our closing uh, segment. Uh, I saw one of your pieces recently in which you uh, bemoaned the lack of uh, uh, action in response to the school shootings with some sensible gun control of the sort that President Biden has been calling for and so many other people, and you likened it to, um, to segregation. And uh, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but uh, the basic fact was there's a moral stain on the country. There was with respect to segregation, and we didn't deal with it. It was an evil, and we allowed it to fester for so long. Here, too, is another moral stain on the country, and we're not doing anything about it. And I thought mm -hmm. it rubbed me the wrong way. And I want to tell you why, and I want to get your reaction to it. The reason it rubbed me the wrong way is while school shootings are horrible. I mean, I don't want anyone to be doubtful about the fact that I'm appalled and disgusted and terrified at these events. They're horrible. With 20,000 or so homicides in the country every year, 10,000 of which are black people who are the victims, the school shootings are a few hundred people killed in a year, max. Max. Again, please understand, I'm not downplaying it. I'm not saying it's not significant. It's very significant. It's horrible. It's traumatic beyond its numbers. I understand that. But it rubbed me the wrong way that, and this may just betray my racial chauvinism, that the trigger for invoking the moral stain of segregation would be that we can't get the NRA out of the way to pass a bump stock prohibition or an ammo regulation or a banning of AR-15s. We can't get the NRA out of the way. Equating that to the moral stain of segregation, which has cast a very long shadow, some of which I think could be understood to be reflected in the high rates of homicide amongst black people when the scale of the thing is so great in terms of the life lost to violence and guns. These are guns that are mainly responsible for these homicides, which have blacks as victims. I, I just felt more was needed in the account that 
you gave about the, you said basically, is America broken? I think that was your last thought, your last sentence. America is broken if it can't do this. America is broken if it can't uh, direct attention to and do something about the horrible violence that is blighting the lives of so many black communities all over this country where babies sitting on their mother's knee are getting shot by straight bullets fired by gangbangers out of the window as they drive by one another. Uh, again, I'll say it for the last time. I'm not diminishing the significance of the school shootings. I'm just saying if you want to talk morality, let's talk morality in its full scope. And if you want to invoke racial metaphors and comparisons in the context of talking about gun violence, the place to start is with the loss of black lives on American cities to the gun violence, which is wreaking havoc in so many of those communities. Black Lives Matter isn't saying anything about it. I was counting on John McWhorter to do that. You make me think it's not just the schools. Those are particularly horrible, but it's the mass shootings in general. To be honest, the one that is iconic in my mind is Buffalo in the supermarket. And then Uvalde was uniquely horrific because it's children, but still, it was Buffalo that sparked that piece um, in my mind. It's the mass shootings and the fact that we are going to see these mass shootings where, uh, who's to measure these sorts of things? But it's 20 people, 15 people at a time as opposed to one. And because of social media, there's a copycat phenomenon where it's happening much more than it used to, and, and it's not going to change. We can be, you know, ever since Buffalo, we've read about something like this every two days, including two days ago. It's going to keep going. There's some young piece of shit planning to do that right now in some city. God, I hope it isn't mine, because in mine, it would be in the subway. And something needs to be done about that. Now, something needs to be done about that poor black girl getting shot on her babysitter's knee as well, as we've kind of talked about. But this particular thing of an alienated, usually white teenager gets you know, an extremely powerful weapon and kills an awful lot of people because he's seeking a sense of drama and doesn't have any friends. And that's going to happen again and again and again. Something ought to be done about that. And our system can't do anything about it. The Republicans won't budge. I see that as uniquely broken, brokener than the fact that gang warfare continues in underfunded, underprivileged black communities. You don't see it as more of a horror, not schools, but just mass. Well, the mass scale shootings. is different. And um, as, as some people scale. have noted, the yeah, school the shooting uh, fatalities are statistically relatively rare. I think we could quibble about how you define a mass shooting, 10 or 20 uh, with a, a high-powered weapon in an enclosed space, a theater, um, a, a supermarket, a school. Yeah, those tend to be exactly what you described. Four or five people who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when a drug deal goes bad and the guy opens up fire and he has to kill everybody so there are no witnesses left. That happens a lot. I can't give the exact number offhand, but it happens a lot. That, that if you include those in the mass shootings, it's, it's a somewhat different story. Uh, the question whether or not uh, the something must be done will actually solve the problem is another question altogether. These are, after all, weapons that are easily marketed underground. You'd have to get all those weapons out of the hands of people in order to really solve this problem. Congress passing a law doesn't make those weapons disappear. There's no you know, magic. Uh, if you've right. got enough money, uh, there's going to be a black market in those weapons. People are going to continue to acquire them. The ammunition might be the way to go. I haven't heard as much talk about that. Maybe we can't get those guns off the streets, but we can probably, you know, stop them from manufacturing the ammunition. And you only can stockpile so much of that. And then uh, you can't make it you yourself. Make it exactly. Yourself. So then you're yeah. then you're out of luck. Um, but okay, um, I, I accept your uh, account as being consistent with my high regard for your uh, moral, uh, you know, standing and. And I get, but, yeah, I get what you mean. I get, it. yeah, in terms of the numbers, yeah, but wow, every two days, every two. Okay. Or three it, days. It, it was the in, the know. evocation of segregation 
as the moral equivalent of the challenge that we face now in the face of the racial disparity in homicide victimization, which characterizes right. the actual problem of guns, the quantitatively, but the symbolic significance of a school shooting or a public market shooting of the sort that you've described can't be uh, gainsaid. I would, I would think. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's call it a conversation. Uh, we have to do our Q&A uh, at some point. Audience out there who are waiting to submit questions, a post at the Substack newsletter for your, uh, to solicit your questions will be going up shortly. And John and I will tend to that within, can I say the next 10 days, John, or two weeks? Because yes. you, you're off to Germany, as you mentioned. Within the next <laughs> Germany, and then we have to go to, to Denver. So yes, within within the next two weeks. All right, right, my friend. Take care for now. Have a great day, Glenn.